So there in Exodus 14 and 15, we've got the wonderful record, really, of Israel going through the Red Sea and the, the great deliverance that, that God, God worked for them. And yet, as you know, really, any Bible reader that, that's read through the Psalms or Isaiah, you know that all the time in later scripture that this is being alluded to. This whole wonder of what God did at the Red Sea is being alluded to in different ways and being spoken of as if it is the basis for our faith now. So many of the Psalms, the, the writer is saying that because God did what he did at the Red Sea, therefore the psalmist believes that he can and will bring about a great deliverance in the psalmist's life uh, in, in the specific problems that, that he's facing. And so what we're reading here is not just dry history. It's not just fact of certain things that happened in the past. This is to be the basis for faith. That you know, we understand that what God did then, if it really happened, and if he could do that then, then he can save us, likewise, from all our enemies and from all the, the issues that, that we have in our lives. And even when things, humanly speaking, appear to be absolutely hopeless, he can, he can work this great deliverance. And in that sense, God's deliverance of the Red Sea is, is ongoing, we could say. And you get that, I think, really reflected in what Moses says in, in Exodus 15 when he sings this, this song, where really he's saying that the wonder of what God, God has done is that it's going to continue. It keeps on going on. And he, uh, he, he talks about how because of what has been done uh, at, uh, at the Red Sea, chapter 15, verse 13, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Well, I, I would submit that that is a prophetic perfect. That is uh, talking about a future event as a prophecy as if it's already happened because it's so certain. You have guided them to your holy habitation. Well, he hadn't. They were just standing at the, the other side of the Red Sea when Moses is singing this. They had not even come to Sinai. They had not, uh, certainly not come to, to the sanctuary in, in Mount Zion. But he's so certain that if God can do this, therefore and thereby, he has, as it were, a guarantee that he's going to, to bring, bring his people through to the, inhabitants of, uh, to, to the uh, inheritance of Canaan. And so in verse 15, he says, All the inhabitants of Canaan are melted away. I'm reading there from the Revised Version. The, the King James says, All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. The RV are melted away. Why the confusion? Because of this thing called a prophetic perfect tense. That is, theoretically, uh, technically, yes, it is a, uh, a past tense. They... Uh, they are melted away, but dynamically, in terms of, of meaning, the idea is they will melt away. It's as good as if it's happened. And then verse 16, uh, again in the RV, by the greatness of thine arm, all these nations, they are as still as a stone. Right now, the AV says, by the greatness of thine arm, they shall be as still as a stone. It's the same uh, confusion of ideas, that because it's so certain now, that because of what God did, therefore these nations will become still as a stone, just as the Egyptians earlier in verse 5 are described as plunging like a stone into, into the Red Sea. 
so it's a certain that it's going to happen. Then going on in verse 16, Until thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, which thou hast purchased. Well, they had just passed over the Red Sea, but it's as if Moses sees the final passing over as being the entire process of going through the wilderness, through all the, the opposition, and coming finally to the sanctuary of Mount Zion and inhabiting and, and inheriting the, the land of Canaan. So then, the fact that God brought his people out of Egypt, he sees as the, the guarantee that therefore and thereby they are also going to pass over all the other obstacles in the wilderness and in Canaan and inherit the land. So what's in all this for us? You know 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The idea being that cloud is just water, there was cloud above them, around them, that, that is uh, just water <laughs> and the, the Red Sea, there was water on either side of them and water above them. So in that sense, they were surrounded by water. And, and Paul perceived in that uh, an appropriate kind of symbol of baptism. So there we were in Egypt, living dumb life, building pyramids, no perspective, just existence rather than life. And God sought our our poverty there, he, he saw the, the poverty of our spirit as, as he did with Israel and he led us out, not by the hand of Moses but by the Lord Jesus we went through the, the water of baptism and we didn't come immediately to the kingdom of God to the promised land, we came into the wilderness of, of, of life so we're familiar with that idea um, but the, the point that we're trying to bring out here is because God has done that for us, because God has brought us out of this world and, and brought us through that water, really this is the guarantee that we will also inherit the kingdom. And yet, of course, that doesn't mean that because you're baptized, therefore you must be saved, whatever happens. But if we're not, it means we are fighting against God. And that's, of course, what Israel did. <clears throat> they, were, they were baptized, as it were, in the water of the Red Sea. And uh, as Moses says here, this is the great guarantee that therefore all the, the obstacles to their inheriting the, the land of Canaan, all these nations would just frizzle away. Um, but, of course, they, they didn't. They, they, they sung with great gusto, I'm, I'm sure, this song of Moses, that all these other nations are going to, going to flee and melt away. When they actually came up against them, when they, they came finally nearer to the land, then they, it was their hearts that, that melted for fear. And there's a, a rather sad sort of play on that idea in, in chapter 15, verse 15, um, where we're told that all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. <clears throat> are, they, are melted away. Uh, and yet that idea of melting you find in Joshua 14 verse 8 where we're told that when Israel had, had heard about the, the size of the Canaanites and how the, the, the walls of Jericho and all that were built up to heaven it says their hearts melted for fear Israel's hearts melted for fear and yet actually it was the heart of the Canaanites that was melting for fear and actually it's the same word used by Rahab Joshua 2.11 when she says that their hearts as Canaanites melted in fear of Israel because of what had happened 40 years ago or so at, at the Red Sea. So then 
they sung this with great gusto, but I'm afraid they didn't put any meaning into their words. And just uh, on a practical level, uh, the more one likes music, the easier it is to sing, I, I think, with, with an attention upon the music more than upon the meaning of, of the words. So then Israel sung this song, and presumably they kept on singing it uh, after they, they had come out of the, the Red Sea, and yet they did not put meaning into their words. So that the very opposite, in fact, of what they sung about in their song happened. It was their hearts that melted, rather than having faith that as they sung, the inhabitants of Canaan, in fact, were melting away because of their recollection of what had happened at the Red Sea. So then, back to uh, the beginning of of chapter 14, let's try to work through uh, chronologically through through the chapter a bit. Chapter 14... um, They'd come out of Egypt after the Passover, 13 verse 20. They started off at Sarkoth, they came to Etham, at the edge of the wilderness, and they were making the logical path towards Egypt. And then there's something unexpected in chapter 14 verse 2. Tell the children of Israel that they turn, RV, that they turn back, and that is definitely the idea of the Hebrew, that they return, that they turn to one side, that they go back. And encamped between Pahahiroth, Migdal, the sea, Baal Zephon. Now you can try to work out where this is. It seems the uh, the place that's, that's referred to was a place that had huge mountains to the south, huge mountains to the west, and you could get into it by a, a narrow little little path down, heading north to south, parallel to the the edge of the Red Sea. Uh, that led to a big sort of grassy, sandy sort of uh, what is now a a beach resort. Um, Very big sort of area would have been enough to uh, to put all the people of Israel. Um, But it's a dead end. If you turn off that that road, that that path that they would have been on uh, from Egypt to, to Canaan, if you turn off like they're told here to turn off, and you go on that path to this place, to this camping place, this is a dead end. You can go further because there's huge mountains, and you can't turn to one side because there's huge mountains. You can't turn the other side. There's a sea. So the only thing you can do is to go back. But they, were, they, they made a, a huge tactical mistake in, in the eyes of, uh, of the flesh. And, of course, the Egyptians saw this, and they ran after them because they said, verse 3, they are entangled in the land. And I understand what I can figure that the Hebrew there really implies that they're lost. They've got lost out there in the, in the scrub. They, they lost their way. That's crazy. They've gone down a dead end. And, of course, they went charging after them. Now, why does God tell them to do this? Well, you, you can see why. Because he wants to bring them into a situation, into a position, where really they have no way out apart from through the salvation of God. And at times it seems that life is cruel. It really does. It seems fate and the hand of destiny, which is ultimately the hand of God, is, is frankly uh, cruel. In the moment that, that we experience it and as we reflect upon it, why did this happen, how it did, how, what, a, what an awful sort of conflagration of circumstances 
came together to produce such such a, a terrible situation. Now, in those moments, yes, that is the hand of God, but why does he do that? Why does it appear that, that this is just some colossal uh, fate uh, carefully engineered by a higher mind, which is, of course, God. How is it that this happened? And why is it? Well, it's to bring us to our knees so that God might save us. He brought them out, verse 8, Israel came out with a high hand. And that is, of course, a reference to the lifted up hand of God, that God, who appears to be passive, suddenly acted. And this is how it is. With us, that is why we are brought into these situations. So then, <clears throat> the people, of course, panicked, and verse thirteen, Moses tries to, to calm them. Stand still, fear not. See the salvation of the Lord, that He's going to work for you today. Hebrews eleven twenty nine seems to say that it was because of Moses' faith that the Red Sea parted. It really does not seem that they had a lot of faith as, as the people. They went on this journey out of fear of the Egyptians, just like people can, as it were, come to Christ and appear to come to Christ and go through the motions, even of baptism and of embarking on the wilderness journey, because they want to get away from this world, rather than because they actually believe. Now, the faith of Moses here was based on on what? Well, yes, God had told him that what he was going to do, and he obviously believed that. But there were a, a couple of references <clears throat> that we can look at in, earlier in Genesis that had clearly made the point that such a deliverance was going to happen. In Genesis 15, <clears throat> verse, verse 14, God had said to Abraham, and Moses records this, don't forget it was Moses that wrote the book of Genesis, that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And then Moses recorded in in Genesis 46, uh, verses 3 and 4, something something similar. Genesis 46, verses uh, 3 and 4, This is uh, in the account of of Jacob. He said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. So then Moses knew that God was going to bring Israel out of Egypt and to judge the Egyptians, and that they were to come out with, with great substance. So... This calm faith of Moses, and his, I'm sure he wasn't feeling calm at the time, but um, this is the impression the record gives. You know, he lifts up his uh, rod and divides the water, etc. You know, Hebrews 11.29 says he did that by faith. He was not just a puppet on a string. He did that by faith. And the colossal faith that he had was based upon God's word. Beating in his mind must have been his memories of of Genesis, of what God had said about bringing Israel up out of of Egypt, judging that land, that nation whom they would serve. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. And here's the whole uh, bottom line of Bible study. This is the whole point of it, that going through these things is what builds our faith. Now, by contrast, 
If you look at the kind of faith that Israel had at the end of uh, chapter 14, verse 31, well, verse 30, Israel saw, and you could put a circle around the word saw, saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore, and Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done, and the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. They saw, and then they believed. Now, you know, Hebrews 11 says that faith is not based on what you can see. The whole point of it is that we can see what is not visible, as if it is so. And the faith of Moses and the faith of of the people are, are so different. His was based on promises that are in God's word, and theirs was based on what they could see. And that's why it didn't last very long. You know, three days in the wilderness, no water, and the whole ecstasy of this wonderful moment that's happened just fritters away. They're back to their old selves. So then, chapter 14. um, We uh, read here how what really saved them was the the cloud, the, the pillar of cloud, because... The Egyptians were really, really close to the Israelites. Why do we we say that? Well, um, God, uh, sorry, Moses says to them that the the Egyptians that you have seen today, you will see no more. The Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will see no more. Uh, verse 13, that's chapter 14, verse 13. So then, they actually saw the Egyptians. They were close enough to be seen. The Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. They were pretty close to them, so close that they could actually see the Egyptians. So then, it was this cloud that came and stood between the two of them that actually saved the the, uh, the Israelites, because that meant that really the Egyptians couldn't get hold of them. Now, I mean, they, these guys are chariots, and the Israelites were, were on foot, or some of them were on foot, that, that's for sure. Probably two million people crawling at a snail's pace with all their animals, etc. The other reason why we, we could speculate that actually they were very close to each other is because we're told that the Egyptians were destroyed in the middle of the sea. Verse 23, verse 27, both emphasize that they perished in the midst of the sea. They were in the middle. And yet the record also says that when they got, when Israel got to the other side, and they were all safely through, then Moses lifts up his rod and the water comes back. So then, once Israel were on shore, the Egyptians were in the middle of the sea. Now, of course, it's a very controversial question where exactly the crossing was, but if it's where it appears that it was, up there in the Gulf of Aqaba, um, one of those sort of prongs that comes off the Red Sea right at the top of it, it would seem that it was not even one kilometre across. So then, at most, there was 500 metres half a kilometre, between the Egyptians who were in the midst of the sea and the Israelites as soon as they were on the land. Probably far less than that. Probably it's a matter of two, three hundred metres. Whatever it was, they were close enough at one stage to see each other. 
So then the angel w- was providing light by fire on one side to give the uh, Israelites light as they, they passed through, and cloud and darkness on the other side. And I think, incidentally, that's what happened in one of the plagues, where there was light in the, in the houses of the Israelites, and there was darkness for the Egyptians. I think that's because the angel actually went and stood, or angels went and stood in each, in each household uh, of the Israelites and provided light for them by fire and darkness to the rest of the, the Egyptians. And that was to prepare them in faith for what was going to happen. And also, I think, to uh, appeal to the Egyptians so that those who, who really believed and were sensitive to this would not have gone charging into uh, a, a great big pillar of fire, uh, sorry, a great big pillar of cloud, because they knew the, they should have known that that was the angel of the Lord. On the other side of it was light for the Egyptians. But anyway, uh, sorry, for the Israelites. But uh, anyway, my point is that the cloud was so thick and dark that the Egyptians could not see through it. I think also it was so thick and dark that that's why they didn't actually realize that they were running into a trap. They didn't see, probably, the water on either side of them. Otherwise, surely they would have thought, what, aren't we just running into a great big ambush here? Aren't we running into a very vulnerable position? But I think because the... The, uh, the cloud made everything so dark, they could not see where they were going. And so they didn't see the water on either side. It was dry ground underneath them. They didn't realize, I think, that they were actually going into the midst of the sea. Where all this becomes significant is that Israel were led by a pillar of cloud. We read that at the end of chapter, chapter 13. That means that they could not actually see where they were going. Because you can't see through that pillar of cloud. The Egyptians couldn't. It's their whole problem. We're walking through the wilderness. We are led, yes, by angels, guardian angel, by the Lord Jesus, etc. Figuratively, that pillar of cloud that went in front of, of Israel, that led them, is what goes in front of us and leads us. And yet you can't see where you are going. So you see the huge paradox here, that we are led, but you can't see where you are going. Uh, And that is something very clear, I think, when you you start to look back in your life, that yes, I have been led. Why am I here? Why am I in this house tonight? Why am I in this situation that I'm in? Why am I living the life that I am, working where I am, uh, matter to who I am, in the situation that I am in? Isn't it so bizarre sometimes when you just stop and think, what's going on? And you feel very much that you have been led, but you cannot see where you are going. And so, I think, to use the Lord's words, so is everyone that is born or led of of the Spirit. The other thing to notice in verse 21, chapter 14, verse 21, that the the gap between the, uh, the sea was kept open by a strong east wind that blew all the night. So all the time they were walking through the sea, there was this strong east wind that was blowing. Now, the part of the Red Sea that they crossed, broadly speaking, was running, if you imagine it, from north to south, and they were crossing from the west, that is from the Egypt side, over to the east, that is the Sinai side. And yet there was this huge wind 
that came. And it was that wind that was so strong that actually blew through the water and divided it. That was what actually caused the division of the water. That means that this very strong wind that was so strong that it actually uh, blew the water into uh, right off from the uh, from the, the bed of the of the sea and made it actually dry for them to walk on. This wind was blowing right at them, and they were crossing from the west to the east. Now talk about Bob Seger, you know, against the wind. You know that one. Uh, anyway, it's sort of true spiritual life, you know, just a young man running and all that against the wind. Uh, uh, it's really so. I often thought of that song, that that's, that's life. That's life in Christ, that's life in the Spirit. That it's against the wind. And there they were walking there at night with this, the, the angel providing this fire uh, with the water on both sides and uh, the Egyptians. Uh, what, a couple hundred metres behind them, and this wind blowing right in their faces and walking against the wind. Now that's a picture of our redemption. You feel sometimes that, that you know, the wind is blowing hard and you're going against the wind all the time. Not surprising. Not surprising. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is what it means to be redeemed by God out of this world out of Egypt and taken on that journey to the promised land. Now the whole language that you've got here in verse 21 of the waters being divided in the midst and dry land appearing, I mean this reminds you of Genesis doesn't it? It's Genesis creation language. The Spirit of God, the wind of God, uh, hovering over the waters, blowing etc. Dividing of the waters in the midst. Uh, if you want the reference, Genesis 1 verse 6. Uh, same word, <clears throat> for, for in the midst. Now, w what's this showing? I think it's showing that, yes, a new creation is being made. But on a more simple level, I think it's showing that the great power that God had exercised in, in creation, he could exercise again in saving his people. And here we come to a very basic implication of believing in creation rather than atheistic uh, evolution. If God could create everything around us, that, that is a colossal power. And that power God is able to use and will use for our salvation. And when the, the Red Sea Egyptian experiences come up in our lives, then we will know that, in fact, God, who created everything, is just as capable of, of saving us. Okay, so chapter 15, the uh, praise of Moses, a song of Moses, which incidentally Revelation 14 says, uh, 15 verse 2 says that the redeemed are going to sing, in the, in the day when Jesus comes back, in other words, we also will perceive that our lives were also a Red Sea deliverance. Um, he uh, praises God and he, he says, and I, I like this little point in verse 2, Moses said, and this is in the first instance Moses' song, uh, this is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him. 
So there is Moses singing in front of Israel, and he says, This is my God, my Father's God. You remember the story of Moses, that he was born to faithful parents. He was with them for the first few years of of babyhood and possibly the first few years of of early childhood. And then he was whisked off into the court of Egypt, uh, court of Pharaoh. And then he grew up, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And for 40 long years, that was his life. And he was groomed as Pharaoh's adopted son, the, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was really groomed to be the next Pharaoh. Forty years. And then he sort of comes to himself and goes back to the, the upbringing he'd had from in babyhood and early childhood, and uh, yep, he stood up for his people and he tried to redeem Israel and it didn't work out, so he went off forty years in the wilderness as a, as a pastor, as a, uh, a shepherd, and then forty years he's the shepherd of of God leading Israel through the same wilderness. My point is, the first 40 years of his life, or until age 40, let's say, he would have appeared to his parents to have been a a tragic loss. It would have seemed, well, Moses, he was the son of our hopes, but uh, we really tried to bring him up well, but, you know, he went off, uh, he hid the fact he was Jewish, He just became an Egyptian, he enjoyed the good life, he got educated and all the wisdom of, of, you know, Cairo University kind of thing. And yes, of course, all the cool life, the good life, and uh, yeah, there he is there, up there, doesn't want to know us, uh, sees his people suffering but does nothing for us. What a tragedy. We tried so hard for that boy, and now he doesn't even want to know us. Must have been so sad for them to see him like that, because I'm sure they would have died, his mother and father would have died during those 40 years. Um, What a wonderful surprise they're going to have in the kingdom of God when they're resurrected and come a judgment, and wow, one of the greatest people in the kingdom is their son, Moses, saviour of his people. And incidentally, that shows, I think, the power of spiritual education of a child, even in babyhood and in very early childhood, uh, the example of Moses, I think, is one of the greatest. That really, that was all the spiritual guidance that he had. And then he was handed over to Pharaoh's family and trained with all the, all the philosophy of this world. And yet at age 40, he had been so grounded in things from a very early age that that somehow influenced him. And now he says... Yahweh is my strength, my song, he is my God, and he was my father's God. And I think Moses here in his moment of triumph, in his moment of exaltation, in his moment of uh, heroism, you know, he is on a human level here, the the victor crowned. Um, He's a guy who uh, had faith and held on when the others panicked and didn't have any faith. He was the guy who had the faith and saved the day and saved them gloriously um, and achieved one of the greatest salvations that that has been achieved apart from the the death of the Lord. And uh, so in in his moment of glory, as it were, he, he exalts Yahweh and not himself and says, this is my God, my father's God. It's as if he's paying tribute to his dad. And I think that's very beautiful, and I think it's very appropriate, and it's an encouragement to anyone 
going through all that stuff of, of child rearing, thinking, oh my goodness, you know, does thing get anywhere and whatever. But this is the power of, of early childhood. This is the power of instilling in someone your God uh, as your child, uh, teaching them of your God. And in time, they may very well, even when we're dead and gone, they may very well accept him truly as their God and stand up and say that. Now, another theme that you get in the Song of Moses, he keeps saying that God threw or cast Pharaoh and his, his army into the sea. Verse 4, for example. God threw them into the sea. Now, they ran into the sea, rode into the sea, at their own volition. If you had uh, stopped one of them and said, excuse me, just doing an interview, there you are on your chariot, uh, are you chasing these Israelites because God made you or because you want to? The guy, the charioteer, the uh, captain of Pharaoh's chariots would have said, nope, there's no God, there's no God of the Hebrews, I'm chasing these guys because I want them. And there, they run away, they stole all our stuff, and we, we're you know, doing justice and all that, we, we're going to get these people back, we're going to get revenge upon them because they ripped us off and they're a bad lot and all the rest of it. So, you think God's chasing you? No, there's no God of the Hebrews. I'm just riding my chariot as fast as I can. But it says here that God threw them, but they threw themselves. Now, I think there we, we see this whole idea of you know, God confirming people in their decisions. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. This is a, the classic, I, I suppose. Point is, every attitude that we have, God is waiting there to confirm us in it. And that's why we can never, as it were, take a holiday, have a break from spiritual life. Well, today, this week, I'm sort of on holiday. I, I'm out of here. No. Every decision we take, God is inevitably going to confirm one way or the other. And so he exalts onwards, verse 11. Moses says, Who is like unto thee, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like thee? So he's not actually saying the other gods don't exist. He just says Yahweh is so clearly the greatest of them. And you, you read that sort of phrase quite often in the earlier books of the Bible. When you get on to the prophets, the later prophets, Isaiah particularly, it's quite a different story. These other gods are attacked and are, it's stated specifically they do not exist. And I think you see there the gentleness of God in his self-revelation. He starts off revealing to us that whatever these other gods are, he is the greatest. And then it becomes apparent that he is so much the greatest that the other gods don't exist at all. You see that again with demons who were, as, as we know, another kind of god, a false god, demigod, believed in in the first century. In the early part of the Lord's ministry, particularly in Galilee, the record talks about him casting out demons. But as the gospel records go on, you don't read about this at all, this language of him casting out demons. In the gospel of John, that was written sometime, it seems, after the other ones, uh, there is no reference at all to, to him casting out demons, and the idea drops off in the later New Testament. Why do you think that was? Well, I suggest that it was because people became, well, the believers anyway, became persuaded that the supremacy of the Lord Jesus and his Father over any so-called gods 
demons or whatever was so great, the miracles were so fantastic, were so decisive and conclusive, that it became apparent that actually these other gods just didn't exist. These demons just were not an item. Now, it's the same as I say in the Old Testament, the same sort of approach is taken. Yahweh is clearly far and above the greatest of all the gods, and then that idea is developed over time in a sort of progressive revelation to turn into the, the truth that there is no other God apart from Yahweh. Now, of course, Israel were told that for them that there was to be only one God. Here, here O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one. That, that uh, Israel were to hear and understand that for them there was to be only one Yahweh. There was one God and that was it. But the existence of the other gods was not directly, in so many words, ridiculed, or they were not directly, it was not directly stated that they did not exist. Yahweh was the greatest. And the whole point of the plagues, I think, was to show that the gods of Egypt um, had been, as it were, humiliated by Yahweh. But it's only later on that you come to the statements in Isaiah, particularly, that actually these other gods do not exist at all. What that shows, I think, is that in teaching God's truth, we also have got to do like Jesus did. We're told that he taught the people as they were able to hear it, not as he was able to expound it. It doesn't mean you tell people things that aren't true. It means that you teach people like you teach children, in terms and within the frames of reference that they have at that time. Why? Because we are not in the business of preaching or teaching to just display our own knowledge to impart our knowledge to other people no that would be arrogance we are doing the whole thing to bring about the glory of god and to bring other people to him now that is a process and that doesn't happen overnight as it did not in our lives and so there is a sensitivity and a gentleness which there has to be in in the way that we conduct ourselves and in the way that we deal with knowledge and God's own example in moments like this or things like this, I think is really our, our example. So then, I want to conclude with um, a comment about the potential of God. That God has set up a whole load of potentials for us that very often we do not live up to. Chapter 15 here, verse 22. They went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water, and uh, they couldn't drink, and so they rebelled and complained and, and all that. And so, okay, God, uh, God tests them, proves them, verse 25, and they fail. Um, but okay, he, he helps them, but um, they failed the test, and all their spirituality uh, and their exaltation of three days before suddenly frittered into nothing. But, and you may like to scribble this in your margin by verse 23, uh, three days, sorry, 22, uh, three days journey in the wilderness. You may like to scribble there, Exodus 8:27, because Moses had said to Pharaoh at one stage, we are going to go, the whole lot of us, three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice unto our God. Three days into the wilderness, they should have been thinking, we've got to make a sacrifice. We've got to give God something. 
But instead, God, you, you didn't give us no water. We're turning back with food with you. And it's so t- tragic. God's intention, Moses' intention, because God had told Moses to say those words, God's intention was that they should go three days in the wilderness after the, the Red Sea deliverance and have a, a feast, a sacrifice to him. You can see it in a way because the uh, the uh, Red Sea deliverance is one in, in one sense uh, looking forward to, to the death of Jesus and three days after there's the resurrection and this event that God had intended for, for Israel would have maybe looked forward to that. But anyway, it didn't happen because they were so caught up with the water's bitter and uh, we, we can't drink it, etc. What are you going to give us, God? Rather than, we're going to give you what we have. And God you know, does this maybe billions of times every single day. It sets up a whole load of potentials that human beings fail to, 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 to live up to. Another example is in verse 17, where God, sorry, Moses speaks about God's intention. He says, you shall bring them in and plant them, Israel, in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for you to dwell in, and the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall be king forever and ever. So then, I understand... Moses to to have in mind here that okay the people had come out of Egypt they were now going to go through the wilderness and then God would plant the whole people in the mountain of his inheritance which was to be his sanctuary where he would be king forever and ever and where God would dwell the place which you have made for you to dwell in now all this language is sort of similar to Mount Zion the, the Temple Mount, and yet I think here he's talking about really the the idea of, of the people dwelling in the land of Canaan, the promised land. So I think he's saying really that the whole of the promised land was intended to be as holy and as much a, a place for God to dwell in, the mountain of his inheritance where God would be king forever and ever. Um, it was that the whole land was intended to be as holy as Mount Zion, as holy as the Temple Mount. But that didn't happen. It, it just didn't. And God did not reign over his people there forever and ever. It, it didn't happen. But in the same way as we, we read earlier, that all the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away, etc., et that uh, there was not going to be any opposition from the Canaanites, etc. Well, there was. This was all set up in potential, but it didn't happen. As the psalmist says, Israel would not. Chapter 15, verse 15. The dukes of Edom shall be amazed. They're going to be scared. But actually, when they they came near to Edom, um, it was quite different. In Numbers 20, verse 18, when the people of Israel come out of the wilderness and they want to cross through the territory of Edom, chapter 20 verse, verse 18 Edom said unto him, to Moses you shall not pass by me lest I come out with the sword against you and the children of Israel 
sort of uh, accept that. Um, they, they ask him again nicely, and he says, verse 20, No, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. But look here in chapter 15, verse 15 of Exodus, it says that the dukes of Edom, the leaders of Edom, are going to be scared stiff because of what you did at the Red Sea. Well, what happened? It's not that God's word of prophecy did not come true. It's that Israel's faithlessness stopped it coming true because it's more conditional than maybe it appears at first sight. What we learn from all this is that for you and I tonight, there have huge potentials been made possible. It may be that there's some guy in your street, in your apartment block, in whatever, that you're going to sit next to on the bus tomorrow, who you could bring to Christ, who is actually searching. But if, if you and I don't do our part, it's not going to happen. And there are, as I say, billions of these things being set up. You wonder why God bothers. You know, you feel like Job, you know, who am I and who is mankind that, that you should bother? Uh, being so passionately involved with us every moment. When we mess it up, we mess it up. But this is the restless earnestness of God, the desire of God to work with us. And that's why when at least we do respond, and we at least do something in response, I believe that God is thrilled. I'm not saying, ah, yes, I don't worry about it, just do a little bit and he'll be happy. Not at all. We should give out our whole heart, soul, and mind in his service and in working with him because he so wants to work with us and he works out all these potentials for us. Final example, verse 27, chapter 15, verse 27. So the people of Israel came to Elim and there were 12 wells of water there. And they encamped by the waters. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And they, they, they come to this, after this shameful incident of Mara when they should have been uh, sacrificing the God and they mess up. Um, and then he pours out his grace. He had arranged, who knows when, years ago, for some reason there'd be 12 wells of water sitting there as it were in a row. 12 wells, 12 tribes. Beautiful coincidence. God had set up this potential right from the beginning. And yeah, you find that in life, don't you? You go through it, and there are moments when God has set up by his grace something wonderful. But the point is to not be like Israel and keep messing up and throwing up our hands and panicking and all that. But to be like Moses and have a faith that's based on hearing the word of God and to look to the end and to walk with God, and to work with God, and to live up to those potentials, and then, by His grace, we shall surely be in His kingdom, because we have, after all, already been redeemed from this world.